You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Hi, I'm Dan Saito. I am not a preacher. I am an art historian, art critic, curator, so I guess I preach with other artists' works of art. Um, I'm interested in the relationship of painting and preaching, the relationship of how or exploring how we experience works of art. I focus a particular attention on paintings, but you can think, when I, when I talk about the visual arts, you can think about music, you can think about film, you can think about literature. I'm interested in the way that we experience works of art and the parallels and relationships to how we experience God's grace how grace is preached to us, how we experience it in church and in the world. And I find very interesting connections. We often think about art, and, and in particularly, this situation is a situation that um, happens all the time because we don't experience works of art in ideal circumstances. If the PowerPoint gets up, and we have a few images, you're not going to be able to see them. Those of you in back aren't going to be able to see it. It's going to depend upon my capacity to speak and to be able to say certain things, to use words to open up your visual imagination. Perhaps you've seen the work, or perhaps you'll go home and and Google it, or look in a catalog and um, and see the work. But this isn't an ideal place. And in fact, as an art historian who teaches students, I spend my time working with images that, that are not the work of art. In a poetry class, I can hand out a poem, I can hand out T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, and you can read it, and that is how, for the most part, how Eliot intended you to experience it. But when I show an image, an awful image, of a painting that is ten times larger or even much smaller than the image, that's not the work. You can't see the texture, You can't see the texture, you can't feel it, you can't... Its relationship to you is completely messed up. And so I have to do a certain kind of voodoo. I do tricks. I will talk about the artist's life. I'll talk about the context within which the work is intended. I'll use language in some way to be able to open up something about that work. And we go to a museum. Those of you that have gone to museums, to get your little bit of culture and art, you go and there are all these crowds, especially if you go to the places like, if you go to the Vatican and you want to see Michelangelo's Sistine ceiling, I find that to be a nightmare experience. You're actually seeing the work itself, but you don't get any time. You have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tourists being ushered in and you're told to get going, stop lingering. Move on and on. Or you go to the Louvre to look at Leonardo's Mona Lisa and you expect it's a masterpiece and you expect the skies to open or to have a kind of aura that will make you weak in the knees. But it doesn't. It's a little, little work and it's under plexiglass and it's separated. There's kind of an altar. (laughs) And it's 
10, 15 people deep trying to get their, self, trying to get their selfies with it and trying to take photographs. But nobody's actually having a life-transforming experience because we think that's what it is. And we go there, that, and then we're let down. We say, well, I don't know why that work is... Aunt Mary in her spare room makes paintings. They're just as good as Leonardo's. Like, I don't, I don't know what separates that. Why, that, why that's a masterpiece. And so maybe you say, well, there's some bit of knowledge and you need somebody with lots of letters after their name and a, and a tweed coat and a British accent to tell you what the, no the knowledge that you don't have. But that's not how we experience works of art. And in many ways, from a spiritual standpoint, we're taught and we think about the spiritual life as one of great transformations. I've succeeded. I was in the gutter 10 years ago, and now look at me. I'm a, success, I'm a successful businessman. I've triumphed. Or the transformations. Perhaps some of you are approaching Lent as a particular way of, of deepening your spiritual walk, and you have all these expectations that you're going to come out of it glowing. And people are going to see you, and there's going to be a glow in your face, a little aura, and they're going to see that Jesus is really working in your life. It's not going to work that way. You know that. Our spiritual life doesn't consist of those storms and skies opening up and lightning strikes and complete transformations. It works in subtle ways, in ways nobody notices, ways you and I may not even notice. And I think about the visual arts, and I've... I think about painting in particular not in the context of its power and strength, but one of the things about painting that is so interesting from the history of art is that it, it relies on power and strength. It is intertwined with wealth, prestige, and power because it's an object that is scarce. If I own it, I commissioned it and I own it, that means you don't own it. And its value goes up because of scarcity. There are also paintings are also ex expensive to make. Materials, the amount of money that artists working today, full-time artists working today, they spend on materials is incredible. And so painting insinuates itself in courts. Leonardo and Michelangelo need patrons, need wealthy, egotistical, selfish, self-glorifying theologians of glory patrons to give them the opportunity to be able to make works of art that satisfy those desires but are doing something else and something more. And so painting is always bound up in its power and strength. And yet, it's absurd. Loading up a paintbrush with stinky pigments, with linseed oil and smearing it on a canvas or a piece of wood, and to actually believe that that has value, that it's not just value for people that experience it, but value for the person that actually gets up every day and does it. And so I've thought about, I've begun thinking about the visual arts in the register of 
fragility, vulnerability, absurdity. Is it absurd that a painting fetches $130 million at auction? Absolutely it's absurd. And yet the painting has another life, a life that moves through prestige and power and wealth and does something else. And if we allow it, it can speak in that still small voice that actually can have, that can insinuate itself in our lives. And so one of the things I'm interested in is the vulnerability of putting a, and the absurdity of loading up a paintbrush and smearing it on a flat surface and the relationship that that has to the absurdity of a fallible, sinful human being standing up, opening up the Bible and saying a few words. That's the means by which God speaks, by which the Spirit works. That's incredible. That's absurd, truly that your sinful, selfish rector stands up here with all of his sin hidden, using his words, his imperfect words, that God uses those means to move mountains, Mountains that are being moved that nobody notices. The mustard seed that's growing, and no, but nobody notices. And the notice we get are notices of the Tim, the Tim Tebow Christianity, or the Donald Trump signing Bibles Christianity, or the other kinds of notions of Christianity that are intertwined with power, politics, prestige, that is usually how we come to learn about works of art. Most of you, you're minding your own business, and then maybe in your social media feed, you'll get a notice that this painting went for $130 million. You go, well, that's crazy, or that this artist has done this horrible thing, or that there's, there's some controversy. So the only way that art will come to the public attention is if it's been faked, it's been stolen, it's somebody pays hundreds of millions of dollars for it, some sort of controversial thing. And so painting and preaching are very vulnerable, fragile human things. And my role as an art historian and as a critic and a curator is I want to respect those fragile, vulnerable objects, the creative artifacts of those human beings that have done the absurd thing and have, that believe that by, by doing this every day, there's a value for it. There's a, there's a, it means something. And that it's possible that you and I standing before that work, that it can address us. But sometimes it doesn't. The more I've spent, I've spent 25 years doing this professionally, and I'm more impatient at museums than ever. I get 
museum back. I noticed people coming in. I spent 11 years as a curator of a museum. I know how people interact, and people, it's like they're going to church. Where's the program, the liturgy? How do I, and how do I fake it so that, other, so that it doesn't look like I don't know what's going on? And museums have solved much of that problem by just giving us headphones that we can then listen to and we can just drift around and follow the voice telling us what to look at. But what's missed are those discoveries that we make. What's missed is us leading with our hearts. I used to be such a purist in graduate school going to museums. Oh, all the people, all the tourists, all the people getting in my way to have an experience. But that's always the way it is. It's what I've learned. It's what I've learned going to church to hear the word being preached while I'm arguing at my wife and kids for not getting ready fast enough, the traffic, especially down in South Florida at this time of year, is just, it's awful. And I'm griping and moaning and there's all kinds of, and then all of a sudden I get seated and I realize I haven't done my to-do list for the workday on Monday and so I take that out and I'm doing, I'm distracted. There's all kinds of distraction. And yet somehow, I hope, there's an opportunity for some words to come penetrate my heart in spite of all the distractions. And what I've discovered is going to museums now, I've so much, I just allow the people, and I like all of the people. I watch the people, I see, and then sometimes it'll feel like there's an opening and a painting comes out and catches my attention. I hadn't intended to go into that corner of the room, but I do. And all of a sudden, it, something has happened. It's not life-shattering, but there's something there that I think about, I look at. I, it helps me, I think about how, I think about that work and what that work is doing to me. That's, that's how we experience God. We experience God's grace in those times when Nothing is perfect. <laughs> and there isn't that perfect moment. Filled with distractions, filled with all kinds of stuff, going, entanglements going on, all of a sudden something happens. And I think you've probably had experiences like that with music or with film. Particularly with, perhaps with music, you have an album and you listen to the album over and over and over. But then all of a sudden there's a song that comes on on the B-side that, like, where's this been? You've listened to it, but now you're listening to it, it's grabbed you for, for some reason. Or an album that you've had that, begin, that evolves with you. You've had it since high school, but it continues to speak to you. It isn't just nostalgia. Oh, I was in high school when I, when I would listen to this music. But it actually grows with you. It actually addresses you in, your, in the life that you've lived. And that's the kind of relationship that I want to encourage with my students and those that hear me speak about works of art, but the potential for that. But the, the potential isn't the exalted whatever myth we have about our relationship with works, just like in the same way the myths that we have about our Christian lives. 
that sometime, at some point, it's going to work. Well, it's working. <laughs> you fall down, you get back up, you fall down, you get back up, you fall down, stumble, get up, and you continue to go. And that through all of the wealth and power and politics that the Christian faith is insinuated in, there is still that still small voice, that fragile, vulnerable voice of a preacher who has the belief that in spite of their vulnerability and fragility and they don't deserve to be here and in fact standing there and if people knew what was going on in my heart and I'm struggling with, they would never listen to me. Words come out addressing, addressing, connecting through the ear holes of all the other sinful people that don't know why they're there and are somewhere else anyway and distracted about the pot roast or distracted about the struggles at work or the email that has to be sent out. And in spite of all of that, those fragile words work. They have the potential to work. That the, the preacher's experience of offering a homily or a sermon and thinking, wow, that wasn't any good at all. And then hearing from people, that spoke to me, that impacted me, that's, thank you for that. You realize, you realize the vulnerability and the fragility, and yet in that, the power, the potential power. And so what I'm interested in doing when I talk about works of art, is that a work of art is more than what we see what we see in terms of the controversies or see in terms of its insinuation with money and power and prestige and all those things. The fact that collectors often collect work that have very little to do with the connections emotionally, experientially that they have. And yet, there's something there that I want to revive or fan the flames of, the potential for us, for you and I, to develop relationships with works of art and to understand that that relationship is not the big, sexy conversion stories, but the subtle, slow accretion and growth in which Works of art, poems, paintings, films, short stories, Netflix television shows. Not just artifacts of high culture. How they deepen our experience with the world. Deepen our experience in a way that we can feel that God is for us and not against us that this world is the Lord's and all therein. Meaning, the paintings, the poems, the songs allow something of depth 
And that the vulnerability and fragility, particularly in the art that I spend most of my time looking at, is art that most people don't like. It's ugly. A kid could do it. My kid could do that. And to think about it in the same register of those singers, for instance, like Johnny Cash or Bob Dylan or Tom Waits or Lou Reed, who don't have beautiful voices, and yet the voice that they speak, that they sing, those words penetrate. And that it's art even though Johnny Cash would never even get on American Idol. <laughs> One critic said every note that Cash sang was out of tune. And yet, and yet something happens with those songs. There's an honesty, there's a directness, there's a power that isn't about prettiness or beauty or what the world values as the great voice. And I'm interested in looking at works of art which are not necessarily works that will, images that will blow a person away because of their technical proficiency. That the response is that, well, I can do that. And in many ways, that's the case. I'm used to speaking in like three-hour blocks. My students in New York, I come in once a week. I spend three hours a night. So, like, we're just getting going. But I hope this at least may whet your appetite for what will come, what I will address tomorrow and Tuesday, and then Monday night at a, at a public talk. That a work of art is, uses its eye. We, it's a visual medium. It's a medium, it's an artistic medium that engages with one of the the most powerful but also deceptive organs that we have. The amount of brain that needs to be used simply for the mechanism of sight is remarkable. And it's sight that we judge. I look around and I'm judging you, you're judging me in terms of what I'm wearing, how I'm, my gestures, my voice, intonation, all of those things are things that you can see our sight helps us to size people up, helps us to know where the exit is, where the traffic is coming from, all of those things that enhance our survival. And popular imagery or our advertising imagery just utilizes that we make snap judgments. The Getty did, a res did some research that determined that the average person spends about 15 to 30 seconds in front of every work of art? Obviously, a, an artist did not labor for years, months and years, to make a work of art for somebody to look at for 15 seconds. And yet, stand in front of a work for 15 seconds, it gets a little long. So we, we treat paintings, we treat works of art, like we treat everything else, like we treat the traffic, like we... Tr like we treat how we negotiate our, the life in very quick ways. But the work of art says, the painting says, yes, engage me visually now, immediately, but there's something else. And just 
Be patient. Be patient. And so in many ways, a painting is a time-based medium, just like music. It unfolds. But it may unfold in a number of different ways. You may glance by it, look at it for 15 or 30 seconds, but then it sits in your mind. It moves around your mind. You want to find yourself coming back to it. And there's something else there that you didn't see the first time. A work of art is not, is not made for you to look at it like this, or even to look at it flocked in with a bunch of people being able to say, yes, I saw that, and now I can post it on Instagram and I can prove it. But that it does something. It's, it's part of, it can become part of our lives in a way that the artist leaves open. But one of the things that, one of the things that, um, that I want to emphasize with my intended um, comments today, Jesus in the art world, the role of, the continued role of Jesus and Christian imagery in contemporary, modern contemporary art. And one of the ways that I would like you to think about it is the transformation between, say, Renaissance and classic art and modern art has less to do with how the works look than the context within which they were made. So a religious work of art like this altarpiece by Matthias Grunwald, in my art history classes, this is all we look at. We look at the crucifixion. But it's an altarpiece. It was commissioned for a hospital, but it's serving a purpose. It's serving a liturgical purpose. The altarpiece is a format in front of which the priest performed the Eucharist. It was the, ba the visual backdrop for the liturgies. And so it was, it sits there in the context of the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacrament. And it follows a particular context. You have, you have the crucifixion, you have various, in the, in, the, in the panels, open panels, you have various, um, could be saints, could be the patrons, could be Joseph, various panels that emphasize the importance of the crucifixion. This is where either the dead Christ lays, or Adam, identifying Christ with that Holy Saturday, death, the identification of death, Okay, if you can go to the next slide. Yeah, yeah, this is, nope, back, that was good. This is the altarpiece when it's opened. So the crucifixion stays, is there at the beginning, is at the front. It then opens up, and the focal point is that it unveils the new heaven and new earth, the resurrection. So Jesus, visually functioning in the context of the altarpiece, doing a particular thing, operating within the context of the church. Jesus, the visual representation of the, of the visual representation of Jesus or Christ is solely in the context of the church. I want, you to, I want to emphasize that. Okay, the next one. Now, other artists, ways to identify with Jesus. Albert, Albrecht Dürer's self-portrait is a self-portrait that's modeled on traditional icons of Christ. 
that is laden with all kinds of interesting implications regarding not Durer claiming Christ-like status, but Durer understanding or desiring to be Christ-like. The identification that Christ has with him as a sinful person. He was a, he was a private but devoted friend and follower of Luther. Certainly in a context in which making those declarations are dangerous. Particularly dangerous for an artist who gets commissions to do altarpieces not from Protestant churches but from Catholic churches. Okay. Hans Holbein's painting is to understand the framework of the altarpiece is to understand the power and the, the depth of emotion in this work. This is, this is the predella of the altarpiece that's down below the crucifixion. It is where dead Christ or Adam lays or Adam's bones. This is a predella with no altarpiece. It is a holy Saturday with no crucifixion and no resurrection. And the holy Saturday is the day that we skip over during our Easter week, right? It's like, this is a weird day. It's the day you get things going in the oven or you start doing, you know, like getting, pressing all the dresses and getting everything ready. It's the day that Christ is dead. It's the day between his sacrificial crucifixion and his triumphant resurrection. It's this no day in which Christ is sleeping, dead, and working. How is that possible? But Holbein gives us none of that. What Holbein gives us is Christ was dead. And he emphasizes this. But what you see now, beginning, are the movements from the Reformation, the movements of moving Jesus out of the structure of the altarpiece. Not only out of the altarpiece, but out of the church and into the world. What was a unified Jesus narrative and story, a picture, you could say, is shattered by modernism. Yet those shattered, the shards of Jesus, go out into the world in bits and pieces. And I'll show you tomorrow night, um, I'll show you examples, more examples, of those bits and pieces of Jesus operating in, in the world, in galleries, museums. And we say, well, it's a fragment of Jesus. Fragment of Jesus is plenty, right? The bleeding woman who reaches out to touch the, the robe of Jesus has no understanding, hasn't been through Gill's confirmation class. She doesn't know. All she knows is that he is the answer and she's reaching out to him and touches the hem of his garment. That's plenty. And so I would suggest to you a fragment of Jesus is plenty. And that fragment of Jesus in the modern contemporary world, Jesus litters the landscape of modern contemporary art. Artists are drawn again and again and again to picture Jesus. Why? There's something there. And I would suggest to you in various ways it's a reaching out.
I think, are we, are we, we're done? Okay, good, good. I'll show this on Tuesday. My, um, my sermon or my talk will focus on, on Caravaggio. Tomorrow I will look at, um, talk about Jado's entry into Jerusalem. Two ways that we can talk about, that I want to talk to you about the fact that seeing is not believing and that there's a contrast between sight and belief. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.